All right. All right, if everybody would start regathering. All right, the troops need to regather, form up, find your seats, both the one on the floor and the one on your body, and put them together. All right, we're starting this session with a, another hymn, number 173, All Glory, Laud, and Honor, number 173.
We shall be focusing our attention on the 50th Psalm, so you may be finding your way to that passage. It is interesting to me that in the church we often express the desire for certain ministries to be fulfilled by saying God is looking for missionaries or God is looking for evangelists and and granted that he wants people to be missionaries and evangelists but Jesus said that the Father is seeking worshipers in John chapter 4. Of course, he had to clarify that because, as we've seen, everything goes in worship. They who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is looking for worshipers. He gets, if he gets a pure, true worshiper, then he can do anything with that person. He can turn them into missionaries or evangelists or pastors or teachers or or deans, or whatever else uh, happened to be the need in that local area. But it begins with worship. As I have said to you, there isn't really a definition of worship given to us in the Bible. There's an awful lot of big words we use in Christianity that have never been defined for us in the Bible. And so we have to try to sort out the best way to explain them I think the Israelites, when they had simply this one word to bow down uh, low to the ground, because that was the easiest for people to recognize, uh, that that's an act of worship. And so it became representative of, the, uh, of all the things that go on in the na- name of worship. And it's very similar to Islam as well. I mean, when I'm in Jordan and Syria, I have uh, usually have to have a, a Muslim bus driver. In Israel, I use uh, Christian bus drivers. But um, come time of prayer, the bus driver will pull over the side of the road. He will get off the bus. He will go down, spread out his uh, carpet, and get on his knees and pray. Um, Nobody wants to know what's he doing or why is he doing that. They have come over the years to recognize that there are certain postures that uh, represent activities that uh, are usually universal. Unfortunately, if you've got Christians who never get on their knees, um, that is usually going to indicate what kind of church they go to and how they function. They'll have to learn how to do that before Christ comes because every knee is supposed to bow and uh, some people might need to practice on that a little bit before that happens. But uh, bowing down close to the ground in reverence to the Lord. Now when I wrote the book for the study of worship, um, I was trying to come up with what I thought would be a good definition is very hard because every book on worship has some something very different. Some of them were very long and involved, and some of them were very short. And we we had just been through a conference at the seminary in Ambridge where I was teaching, and one of the speakers was a bishop, and 
he made such a profound statement, um, worship is God. <laughs> well, who's going to disagree with that? I mean, <laughs> Jews, Muslims, Christians, I mean, that's it. But surely we can do a little better than that. My pet peeve, um, and I hope Scott approves of this, but my pet peeve is calling the music director the worship leader. Uh, the pastor, <laughs> the pastor is the worship leader. Because if you do that, it gives the people the idea that worship is just the singing part. But what do you say then about Holy Communion? What do you say about the Word of God being read? What do you say about the prayers? It's all worship. And it ultimately comes back to the pastor to make sure that that this is all working together. I mean, I go to a lot of places to preach, and sometimes I say, well, the hymns don't fit anything I'm trying to do. And then once in a while they do. And that's when they come and say, see, God did that. What about all the other times I've been here not <laughs> doing the same thing? What I tried to do in the book was to write a definition of worship that was comprehensive, not because I needed a bumper sticker. I don't like that mentality. Um, we, we had a conference where a bunch of Anglican priests were sitting around trying to decide. Uh, this was uh, in between the meetings. They were trying to decide what little short expression can we use to identify Christianity and they were thinking in terms of putting something on your bumper and uh, one of my colleagues at Trinity, Rod Whitaker, New Testament professor said uh, well what's wrong with if you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved what's wrong with that? One of the priests, so help me, this is true. One of the priests in the room said, That's damn good. Where'd you get it? <laughs> is there any wonder why we are having trouble defining worship uh, when uh, the Bible is not known uh, for all that it uh, says? But the point is, what I tried to do is to write a, a definition that would serve a worship committee in a church. You're planning all the things that go into a worship service or festival seasons or high services. And, uh, and I wrote the definition in this book on worship. And um, let me read it and then just explain what I'm doing with this. I had a basic definition and then sub-clauses that were going to explain by means of this, by means of this, and so on. So if there is a committee in a church trying to evaluate our whole worship experience in this church, this really would cover it. Because as I wrote this definition, I do it like we do a lot of definitions that you can't just look up in an English Bible or an English dictionary and get a definition. You go through the scriptures and you find all the things that are going on under the name of worship and now you've got to write a statement that includes them all. And so that's what I've done here. I have my basic statement, true worship is the celebration of being in covenant fellowship with the sovereign and holy triune God. No other religion could say that, but it is a celebration. In my current 
practice in, in church, we use celebration for praising, but we also use it for the person who is leading Holy Communion. He's celebrating communion. And uh, we use it in modern English the same way. We will celebrate some hero or, uh, you know, it's, it's a time of acknowledgement and so on. But this is a celebration, not just, you can't stop there, celebrating what? Being in this covenant fellowship with the holy, sovereign, triune God. That's the basic idea. But then the how-to, <coughs> the first clause, by means of the reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God's nature and works, the expressed commitment of trust and obedience to the covenant responsibilities, and the memorial reenactment of entering into the covenant through ritual acts. The first one, by reverent adoration and spontaneous praise, this is going to be testimonies, declarative praise, hymns. Uh, all these things are going in there, praising God for his nature and his works. And the second one, the expressed commitment of trust. This is where you're going to respond to the word and proclaim your obedience and your willingness and your trust in the Lord. It assumes the reading of the word. It assumes the preaching of the word. This is the response to it where you know your covenant responsibilities. And included in the life of worship in the church is the memorial reenactment of entering into the covenant through ritual acts, which would include, for most of us, uh, at least baptism and the Lord's Supper, where we are having a ritual enactment, but it's about entering into the covenant and celebrating being in covenant relationship. And then the last clause is all of this is done with the confident anticipation of the fulfillment of the covenant promises in glory. All worship is eschatological. You are doing it, well, as Don says about music, you know, it's, for now we're just warming up our instruments. And so in glory, um, there will be great praise. There'll be great celebration. There will be things that you will not do in heaven that you can only do now. Unfortunately, we're not doing them now. But one is praise, because when you look at biblical praise, and especially in the Psalms, it always is given to edify and encourage the faith of the saints. You praise God for what he has done for you. You turn to the congregation and say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust the Lord, all of that. But in heaven, you're not going to do that. They're all perfect. They're all glorified. You're not going to have to tell them to confess their sins or to instruct everybody in the faith. Your praise will be pure, and it will be much more glorious. But it's down here where you can see that will be a means of edifying people in the faith and encouraging trust and loyalty, and we don't do it. And it's the same because that's a big part of the personal testimonies that come. The other thing you'll never do in heaven is have in your worship a confession of sin because that will be gone, will be glorified. But down here, the confession of sin and the glory of finding forgiveness. So there's, there's a lot of things like that I try to do in the uh, book, but I'm not, writing a, I'm not writing a definition where, you know, some people say, well, worship, worship is praise. Well, it includes praise. 
you know, worship is the Holy Communion. Yes, it includes the Holy Communion. All of these things are acts of worship. And if it's done in a congregation, they're going to be very specific acts. But then you have to have a definition of worship that will extend and reach out from this to how you have your family worship and how you worship God when you're driving on the freeway. And, and, and you're still going to bring in many of these things, probably not have communion while you're driving down the freeway, but um, basically a, a celebration, praise, adoration, recommitment, obedience, uh, all those kinds of things that are involved with it. It's the whole spiritual life in the presence of God. And so that's why you don't have a... Genesis 1 starts off by saying, let's start with a comprehensive definition of worship. It grows as you start watch worship, seeing the worship. Just take Passover. You start with Passover in homes in Egypt. And they're going to do it a certain way because they're running for their life, they think. And you keep seeing Passover being developed as you go through the Old Testament until you get to Josiah and his great reforms. He has a celebration of Passover. The people don't want to go home. They want to stay there a couple of weeks. And he's got the choirs and the musicians all around the tops of the walls of the temple and praising and singing God. Uh, they had music in Egypt. Moses wrote a hymn when they got through the sea. But they don't have that kind of an elaborate celebration in music and hymns and praises uh, until you get into the time of David and beyond. And and that becomes a really tremendous part. Uh, it's very important to remember that in the book of Psalms, when you're dealing with praises and hymns, um, you can't go wrong with them because they are 100% divinely inspired Word of God. Uh, some of our hymns, not so. Um, but the best that I like, and I may be not speaking for the majority here, this is probably the minority report, I like uh, hymns that you can really easily connect to scriptures. Um, people can sing, well, they don't sing many hymns anymore, but they can sing, Nearer My God to Thee. It's a beautiful hymn. And never think of Jacob at Bethel. Uh, that They're missing a point. These hymns are going to use biblical language, biblical expressions, and if the people today don't understand those references and languages, um, we drop the hymn or we change it rather than teach them what the words in the text really mean. So it's a huge subject. covers everything that you do in your faith, in service and adoration of God. To write a simple definition really isn't that easy and you don't find one in the Bible. And if you make it too simple, it's not going to say anything. This was written for a, a worship committee in a church that wants to take several weeks to sort through what are we doing, how do we do this, when do we do that. Uh, that's what we had in mind. And uh, when I teach my course on worship and ecclesiology at the seminary, that becomes pretty much the outline for all the kinds of things we have to discuss within the uh, life of worship and therefore in the course. Now, coming to Psalm 50, we have an interesting wrinkle here. This is not written by David. This is written by Asaph. Do you know who Asaph was? <laughs> he wrote about a dozen <coughs> psalms, so he is, he is a writer of psalms. 
He is David's director of music. He is the chief musician. But in Chronicles, those gifted musicians and singers are also called prophets. There is clearly a prophetic, a prophetic ministry of music. But that has another topic altogether to be discussed, and I'm sure Scott can do a better job on that than I can. But it's, it's, it's not just let's get everybody a gathering music and this kind of thing. It's a prophetic ministry. And it's first started here with David, who's a prophet, and then Asaph. He is a chief musician, but he is also a prophet, and he writes a bunch of psalms. And this Psalm 50 is a classic because it's an indictment against false worship. I suppose if I could modernize this, he's been sitting on the platform week in and week out watching everything that's going on, and it's time not to just sing another hymn, but we've got to talk about this. <laughs> Yet he is a prophet, and so he's going to give not his own ideas. These are going to be words from God. The psalm falls neatly into three parts. It's always helpful for you to say that when you're dealing with a passage of Scripture. You've got an audience that's just trained to listen for about seven minutes, and then there's a commercial. Um, and so to be able to say, let's take it step by step and see how the argument unfolds. And the first part of this psalm, Asaph sets the scene. In my denomination in the Anglican world, this is a psalm that they use for Epiphany Sunday. Uh, you may not know what Epiphany Sunday is, but uh, they use it for that. But it is not uh, an epiphany in the sense of that meaning of the word. An epiphany in the Old Testament, not in the church calendar, but in the way it's used, is the appearance of the Lord accompanied by all the manifestations of nature clouds, lightning, darkness, fire, whatever, that's a little different than a theophany. In a theophany, the Lord can appear in a human form, a visitor to Abram's tent, but epiphany is something else. And the epiphany that stood out as the standard was at Sinai. There the Lord was on the mountaintop, it was on fire, there was clouds, there was lightning. And the minor prophets will talk about the day of the Lord, that that's going to happen at the end of the age. And so that's epiphany. But none of that works here because what Asaph is describing is a hypothetical court case. Make sure you keep that in mind as we're going through this. What if the Lord showed up in this service to hold a tribunal of how we are worshiping? That's what he's doing. So he imagines an epiphany. And he's going to use all the language of epiphany. But let's read through it so you can see what I'm talking about here. This is Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh. Anytime a prophet introduces a subject with multiple names and titles for God, this is something you take pay, pay close attention to. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, your Bible will say the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. He summons the entire, the whole world from east to west to come and witness or 
observe or be testifying to this tribunal. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and he will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a sacrifice, a covenant sacrifice by me and the heavens proclaim the righteousness for God himself is judge. Here you've got a court case being set up. The defendants are my people. These are worshipers. These are people who have made a covenant and with God and entered into it. And now the Lord is coming with all his power and might behind him. And uh, he is going to hold a court case. He's calling everything in heaven and earth to be a witness that this is going to be a righteous judgment. And it, he's the judge himself, so we know it will be a righteous judgment. So God is the judge. The defendants are worshipers. The witnesses are everything in the creation. And uh, all the epiphany language that is used to show, as at Sinai, that he's a consuming fire, that he has all the power at his disposal to do as he wishes, and he will use it in judging the world or disciplining his people or moving heaven and earth to establish his covenant. All of this is at his disposal. So that sets up the scene. That's the courtroom. As I said, it's hypothetical. This isn't a second coming psalm. This isn't a final judgment psalm. This is a, what if God comes into our congregation, sets up court, and he's going to bring a couple of indictments and we'll see how you fare. That's really what Asaph is saying. And so the rest of the psalm is the two indictments. This, a lot of times the prophets, and especially psalmists who are prophets, love to use the passages about the Lord and his activities as a tribunal in which charges are brought against the defendants and uh, and a course of action is advised. So here we have the first indictment that is given to us beginning at verse 7. And this is as a prophet Asaph is telling us the word of God. So the Lord is saying, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. You know they're going to lose that court case. But this is the Lord. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. In other words, I'm not coming to judge you on the basis of the performance. You're here in the sanctuary. The priests are wearing white linens. The sacrificial animals are perfect. The choirs of the Levites are singing to the letter of the Psalms. Everything is beautiful. Everything is uplifting. Everything looks marvelous. And uh, people would say, this is a wonderful service. 
and they, the sacrifices are being offered. This is, it's done to the letter. God says, I'm not criticizing you for that. However, <laughs> do you think I need it? That's his question. I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices and your worship services and so on, but I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field belong to me. If I were hungry, I would not tell you For the world is mine, and all that is in it. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So, this is his first indictment. They're doing everything to the letter. It's done very beautifully. But he's saying, do you think I need it? Something is wrong with their motivation. Something is wrong with their orientation. What is happening here is their orientation to the offerings and sacrifices is 100% pagan. What did the pagans do? They brought sacrifices. They slaughtered animals and put them on the altar. They brought gifts to their gods. They brought food offerings and drink offerings and animal offerings for one simple person purpose. They had to feed the gods. They had to make sure. See, the whole system of the pagan world is sympathetic magic. If you keep the gods happy, then they'll make you happy and it's come. And so you have to make sure they're well fed. And in those rituals, they would come in, they would get the gods up, they would wash them, they'd clothe them, they'd put food in front of them. And apparently in Canaan, the gods liked beer because they'd always put a lot of beer in front of these gods. And then they'd come back a little bit later and it was all eaten. So obviously God was pleased with that and therefore if you keep him happy, he'll make sure you're happy. All pagan ritual is based upon sympathetic magic. What goes on in heaven determines what's going on in earth. And so it's the background, by the way, for cult prostitution. Uh, If you wanted children, you had to induce the gods in heaven to copulate. And therefore, you do that by copulating with a high priestess in the temple of Canaan's Baal or whatever. And by sympathetic magic, you try to control things. It's the background of, of, of voodoo and burning people in effigy and whatever. There's a, the idea that by having this substitute and you do something to it, you can influence the spirit gods behind it. And therefore, this will work to your favor. But that's pagan worship. God is saying, listen, I own every animal in existence. I know all the birds, everything in the fields, all these creatures belong to me. If I really needed food from you, I wouldn't tell you. I don't eat the blood of goats and calves and whatever. The point is, they were going through a perfect ritual with the wrong purpose. Their wrong purpose was they were convinced that God needed them. And God doesn't need them. God doesn't need us. We, we, we sometimes get carried away with this. We want a good offering, so we say, God really needs your money. No, he doesn't. 
He's happy to receive it if it's done with a giving and a willing heart, but he owns everything. His enterprise in running the world is not dependent on us doing things that, we are, that are nice for God. That's not the way it works. You are supposed to, as an Israelite, and as a Christian, the same thing, but as the Israelite, you give a sacrifice to God because you need Him, not because you think He needs you. That's the, that's the total opposite of the pagan world. Why would a person give a sacrifice to God? Because it is thanksgiving for what God has done for them. It's gratitude for the benefits that God has given to him. All of it is speaking of he's doing something for us. I give a sacrifice to him, which is very little to be required, as a token that he has blessed, that he has provided, that he has given. And uh, all he asks is for me to acknowledge that in my worship. So what happens is that Asaph, being a good preacher, after he brings out the indictment and the charge of what we would call empty formalism, formalism is just not stained glass windows and uh, serious liturgical services. It is uh, whatever you do and you follow the form, but the meaning isn't right or the meaning isn't there. And so he's brought that charge against them. That's the first indictment. And so now he will tell them how to remedy the situation. Offer to God the sacrifice of praise. This is one of the three uses of the peace offering in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7, to offer a sacrifice of praise. You're coming into the sanctuary to praise God because he's answered prayer, he's provided you a nice job, he's given you a lovely family, he's made your life comfortable. All these are wonderful things. You owe him your praise. But it's not like we used to have in California. You have a praise service and we used to say it's just pop up and pop off. You know, that's not quite it. They had to come into the sanctuary. To get into the sanctuary, they have to bring sacrifices. And when they're going to give a praise, it has to be a peace offering. So they have to go through the other sacrifices first, bring this peace offering. It will be killed, and the animal's body will be placed on the altar, and it'll be roasted for the communal meal. And while that animal is roasting, you stand at the side of the altar, and you tell everybody what God has done for you. And you're so thankful for that, you've brought dinner. You've got this huge animal, and they're going to eat. The poor will eat. The priest will eat. Your family will eat. And they know they're eating because of something God did for you. So the whole idea of offering the sacrifice of praise to God is evidence that you have been praying and that you've been enjoying God's benefits and that there is a reality to your faith, not just an empty ritual. This is, this is the heart, the very heart of Israelite worship. Everything that went on in all the other sacrifices and all the other activities comes to this central focal point of the peace offering, to be able to eat with God because you're at peace with God and celebrating that in the congregation with all the other saints who are there. I think it is safe to say, as others have said it long before me, that the 
barometer or the measure of the spiritual vitality of a congregation is how much individual praise is going on in those services. Not just how many hymns are being sung. That's a form of praise. But in individual praise, you are coming up with the words coming out of your experience during the week, your answers to prayer, your experiences in devotion to God, and you want to put that in words and give a public declaration of that to the congregation. And it'll be called a sacrifice of praise in Israel because it'll cost you to do that. You bring the animals, and you're going to be particularly thankful. Hannah is very thankful when she gets the little boy Samuel. What does she bring? Three heifers and three bottles of wine. That is a very expensive peace offering. But she's very thankful. (laughs) And God gave her a child when she was barren. And he will become great in the nation. Now, somebody might say, well, that's Old Testament. You know, we're living in the church. Well, all you have to do is go to Hebrews 13, verse 15. You and I are told to offer to God the sacrifice of praise. And then it clarifies it's the fruit of our lips, public praise. And then he adds the clause. And don't forget to share with those who have needs. (laughs) That's the nature of the peace offering. God blesses this person in order that through that person he will bless the congregation because they will have food and they will be enriched uh, with the spiritual meaning. And so this becomes the solution to a worship that has become an empty ritual. You can go to church year in and year out, go through the motions, sing the same old hymns. Halfway through the hymns, you finally figure out you're singing. You know, it's just so natural. You're just wading through the thing. And you ask, where's the life? Where's the spirit? Uh, where, where is something that is, that is significantly indicating that we as a people are praying and we as a people are enjoying God's benefits? That's where the individual testimonies come in. I know in churches I belong to, the testimonies were allowed to get out of hand. It became group therapy for some people. They'd get up and just give a testimony, and they're going on and on. I've got their surgery and the hospital and the bills that mounted up and whatever. There's a place for that in the life of the church, but not in a congregational praise service. Uh, You can mention the needs that you had and how God blessed or whatever, and there will be times for prayer, which would include public praying and sharing prayers. But in a praise service, the Lord is being lifted up. And you don't want to let it deteriorate into what we used to call in California into bragamony uh, instead of a testimony. You know, somebody says, I flew from Dallas to Los Angeles and I led three people to the Lord on the plane. Praise God. God didn't get any praise in that. Uh, He stays in his place. He doesn't move. But your words have to elevate him, exalt him, lift him up and uh, you diminish in your own credit. This is what's going on here because God spells out how this works. Because you just can't say, well, sing happier songs and we'll be better. And that's, that kind of thing reminds me of uh, 
I, when I was in seminary, I had two cars, two little Volkswagen Beetles, so I could always exchange parts back and forth. And uh, I used to have trouble with one that the battery always went dead. And so it was not a problem because I could just jumpstart the battery from the other car and off I'd go and it worked for a day or so. But then it would run out again. And I've often thought that some of our services are like that. You're like that. We're just jump-starting the congregation. And they come out of there all happy and enthused. And then Monday or Tuesday, it's all kind of dead again. And that's not going to last unless you have a lasting relationship with the Lord and you're praying and you're enjoying his benefits. Look at what God says. He's not just here wanting praise because he's... He's needing some more strokes and some praise. No, he's got angels praising him forever. And uh, he is not dependent on that. But here he's saying, You call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And then you will honor me. That's the cycle. If you're going to offer the sacrifice of praise, it starts, You call upon me in trouble. I'll deliver you. Then you come in and honor me. So it's not just saying, uh, praise the Lord, and uh, praise the Lord, or as one of that signs said, praise the Lord anyhow. No, that's not quite it. Praise the Lord because that praise is coming out of a living faith that the people have, uh, trusting, praying, enjoying God's benefits, and learning more of Him. And if you do that, then the service is not going to be an empty, formal routine that might even be with the wrong meaning. I've seen that too. Uh, I've had people tell me that they were they were giving something up for Lent, and I'd say, "Why? Because I've got something I want God to do for me, so I have to be good for a while." Uh, this is so so foolish. It's so pagan. He's not a genie in a lamp that if you rub it three times, he'll pop out and give you what you want. No, you're the servant. And uh, he is the Lord and the provider, and you pray, and you enjoy his benefits, and you come to the congregation to share what the Lord means with, uh, to you. And people in the congregation will then catch on that God is doing something in this crowd. We're not just here to sing the words and listen quietly. So you don't worship God with just an empty form It has to come from a living faith. That's one indictment. The other indictment is hypocrisy. To the wicked, God says. This word wicked is tricky in the book of Psalms. Um, If you ask somebody in your church, how many wicked people do you know? Um, I bet they don't know any. They live in a nice community and they got their friends and their families. But if you go back to, say, the King James translation, how many ungodly people do you know? Oh, they're everywhere. And unfortunately, many of them are nicer than some of the saints you know. Um, Remember the old ditty, to live above with the saints I love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, that's a different story. (laughs) A wicked person is usually someone that you don't really have any evidence that they are members of the covenant. Uh, They're not necessarily grossly evil. They can be. But they are people who are simply ungodly. And you don't know from the way they live whether they are true believers or not. 
but they are there in the services. And here he's saying to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? I could paraphrase that. Why are you going around quoting scripture? Why are you going around saying the creeds? That doesn't match. Because you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you. Then he gives some details. This is a very general statement, but then he says, when you saw a thief, you consented with him. Notice he's carefully. He's not saying you stole anything. He says you've, uh, you've consented with a thief. You, you're, you're, it doesn't bother you when people steal things off the airline or if people are cheating in the store and in all of this. And, you know, if they can get away with it, good for them. This is the attitude we got today. Um, or you throw in your lot with adulterers. He hasn't quite said they commit adultery, but it doesn't bother you. In fact, in, it's good entertainment on TV and the movies. Uh, they wouldn't be able to sell their films if there wasn't something adulterous or crooked or wicked there. That sells better than a movie about somebody who is virtuous and pious and saintly. Uh, won't get the audience. But you you throw in your lot with adulterers. Uh, there's not that, there's not that um, razor sharp conviction that that you're uncomfortable around evil, and uh, we've grown to accept it. And then he gets to something they actually do: you use your mouth for evil, and you harness your tongue in deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. We know in the Bible that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But he doesn't have to do it all himself. The church does a lot of that. And families do a lot of that. And it's so easy to, uh, to accuse. Proverbs says that if you find and uncover a sin in someone else and it's been taken care of, you bury it. Others will say, no, we've got to tell everybody about this. No, you don't. Because Proverbs says that will divide people. That will divide the righteous. It's, um, it's, the slandering is false. Uh, telling the people's uh, dirt is, is not necessarily false, but leave that up to Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. But you see, what he's talking about is these are people who are comfortable with great sin, kind of like Lot, who's a, is a patron saint of a lot of evangelicals. He's very comfortable in a world where great evil exists. But when it gets a little bit too evil, then he doesn't like it, and all of a sudden he sounds righteous, and all the people say, hey, what are you doing here? You've lived here all your life. You never said that before. And uh, yet the Bible says he's righteous. And so the Lord will answer Abram's prayer and get the righteous out of Sodom before he destroys it. But even then, the angels have to drag Lot out by the shirt tail. He's not going to be made a pilgrim even with fire and brimstone. This is talking about people who are very comfortable in the wicked world. And unfortunately, that's very easy to, pr to fall into and it's very difficult to 
prevent. Alexander Pope, in his essays on man, put it this way, Vice is a monster of so frightful a mien, to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too often, too familiar its face, we must first tolerate and endure and then embrace. When we, when we let down the standards of right and wrong and morality and ethics and get comfortable with it, then we're no longer opposed to it. And it's there we're in our most vulnerable position. And God does not want worship that is coming from people who are dancing on the edge of vice and corruption and are not quite sure it's completely wrong. And they have misjudged God as well. Look what he says. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. In other words, they had confused God's patience with God's permission. He hasn't struck me down, so this must not be wrong. Carry on as uh, status quo. But God says, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. What's his recommendation for people who are toying with sin, experimenting with sin, comfortable around great sin? Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to escape. Whoever sacrifices the sacrifice of praise honors me. And uh, he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God, the deliverance of God, the sacrifice of praise. Once again, it's the solution to the empty formalism. It's the solution to hypocrisy. Wonderful line in Shakespeare where after the murder, the man says, I, I try to say the amens, but they catch in my throat. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you praise God when you walk into the sanctuary and the whole week has been filled with unconfessed sin and, and all kinds of uh, corruption that has gone through your head and your mind, all of that has to be purged and confessed and dealt with. Even if you say, well, I, you know, you can't avoid it because it's everywhere you look. Well, that means just like the Israelites, they had to include that in their spiritual renewal and their confession. Israelites had a lot of hard times in the first century because they couldn't go comfortably into the Gentile cities. If they did eventually. They had to for certain things. But if they went into Capernaum uh, or if they went into Caesarea or if they went into Bethshan, these are cities that were filled with naked statues of gods and, and uh, temples to false deities. And, and, and if they were truly devout believers in their faith, this would disturb them so much. They didn't want to be around it, didn't want to see it. Um, we may have lost the idea that it's disturbing uh, because we've grown kind of comfortable with it in our culture. And uh, that cannot be. So if you offer the sacrifice of praise, what does that mean? It means that you have been worshiping and serving the Lord throughout the week, not filling your mind with corruption in the world, and that when you come to the sanctuary, you will be in a spiritual condition to praise God 
for his answers to prayer, for his provisions, for his blessings. If there is no praise, there is a serious question about whether or not that person is really enjoying the benefits of God. C.S. Lewis, in his discussion of praise in the Psalms, um, always had trouble, he said, growing up with God always asking uh, for praise until he started studying it in conjunction with the Catechism of the Church of Scotland. And, you know, that's the one that says your chief end, your real purpose on earth is to enjoy God and praise Him forever. And he made the point that if you're not praising God, you're not enjoying Him. It's kind of like somebody goes on a, on a tour and comes back and never tells anybody they went, never shows any slides, never bores people with the souvenirs. Um, you wonder, what did he do? Um, it, it's just something that didn't make much of an impression on him, or uh, for some reason he doesn't want to talk about it. You talk about the things you enjoy. That's a standard rule of life. You go to a good restaurant, you talk about it. You see a good play, you talk about it. Uh, everything that you enjoy, you end up talking about it to somebody. If you have grandchildren, you really talk about it. And everybody, time you have a chance, it's, it's the things that you enjoy that you talk about. So if you're not talking about God, you're not enjoying Him. And that has repercussions for the source of the problem in worship. So Asaph is saying... God doesn't want empty formalism and he doesn't want hypocrisy. And the solution to both of them is a living faith that will be expressed in praise. And that's such a natural part of life. I had a student in my worship class a while back that uh, uh, they, they can do all kinds of projects and he was getting married so he decided that... Uh, he was going to write the whole worship service for his wedding because he was going to be married right as the semester was over and he didn't want somebody to do it, didn't know what they are doing. So he used that as a project. And included in his marriage, he had a time when if right after that he and his bride said their vows that they had all the married couples in the room stand up and repeat their marriage vows to each other. <laughs> Everybody thought it was moving and terrific, but sometimes the women would say, he hadn't said that to me in 40 years. <laughs> well, how can a marriage survive when we don't praise the person we say we love? Oh, this, this is natural. How can, how can your children have a sense of well-being if you never praise them for what they do? Uh, praise is natural to life, and yet when we come into the sanctuary, we sit quietly. Something's wrong. You can go to a football game, you can strip to the waist, you can paint your body blue, you can yell your head off, and you're a fan. But uh, what else are you excited about? It's just our, our culture has invaded and robbed us of the heart of worship. And uh, there's no, there was no concerted effort to do it. It was just easier not to do it. But Christ said that the Father is looking for worshipers. And then he gives the qualities. They've got to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, in the book of John, I am sure the primary meaning is that if you're going to worship now in the new covenant, it will be by the Holy Spirit. 
you'll worship in spirit. And we know that the Gospel of John makes it very clear that Christ is the truth. And so, therefore, the worship now is not going to be, as he says to the woman, not in this mountain, not in that mountain, but it's going to be in spirit and in truth. It's going to rise above all of that. And I know that's what it means probably in the context of John. But there's another element to that that I think is being hinted at here, that what this, these two indictments do are, are to set up the, the, the teaching of Christ God does not want worship that is empty formalism. There has, it has to be living. There has to be a spirit life to it. It can't be just a ritual. And God does not want worship that is hypocritical. He wants worship that is given in truth. So by, the, by spiritual worship, because spiritual simply means you're rightly related to the spirit. And so you're offering your worship to God uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that worship will be spiritual. And if you're worshiping Christ, you are worshiping the truth. He is the truth. But your worship better be from a life that is living the truth because there would be a big disconnect if that was not the case. So Asaph is laying out this much-needed adjustment midstream adjustment, just to say, in the life of David, it's coming very early, that there are so many subtle ways that we can kill worship without borrowing pagan ideas and without, without becoming idolaters and so on. But those were big problems for Israel. But those problems would have never arisen if they had been worshiping with the proper spiritual life and uh, in obedience and faithfulness to the truth of God's Word. And so whenever you see revivals being described in the books of Kings or Chronicles, they always, they always include a worship service. They'll get rid of the corruptions in the nation, they'll get rid of the sins, have a real reformation. But it always comes out that they're going to renew their worship in the sanctuary with the Feast of Passover, and uh, the basis of their change will be worship. And that's what we have to be constantly watching out for in the life of the church, because in the life of the church, even if it's a good church, it can run into this problem. In the book of Revelation, you have the seven letters to the churches. And... One is to the church of Ephesus. When you read Ephesians, when you read Acts, this is a great church. This is something that Paul has worked much with. When you get to the letter in Revelation, you've only gone probably 25 or 30 years after the death of Paul. And the church in Ephesus has left its first love. Didn't turn to heresy, that's not the charge. The life is gone. The love that they had for Christ, the love that they had for one another, the love that they had to serve God and to me, it's gone. It's now an, a nice church with a comfortable group, and, and it's going to carry on, but it's, it's lost something, and that weakens it for everything else. So we need to pray that the Lord will ignite our worship, renew it, so that we'll truly be in spirit and in truth, not in just the empty rituals that we're used to, 
or with hypocritical activity behind the scene. Those are always going to kill the worship. Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts with your word as we are reminded again and again what you desire. And it's not that you need animal sacrifices. It's not that you need a big offering. You are happy to receive it if it is given by faith and and love and service, but you own everything. And when we give praise and thanks to you, or when the Israelites gave their sacrifices of praise, it was an acknowledgement that we need you and that we are dependent upon you for everything that we have. And even if we are wealthy or have a lot of bounty, it is an acknowledgement that it came from you. Every gift comes from the Father in heaven. And I pray that our worship would be renewed every week so that it might be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Once again, we thank you for taking us to a psalm. Okay, anybody have any questions? We have a few minutes. After this, Alan will be around for about an hour and a half during the lunchtime, so you can grab him and ask him some other questions. But, but after that, well, you won't have another chance. And you won't need it in heaven. And you won't need it in heaven. <laughs> Unless we have him back another time. Mm-hmm. Which. <laughs> since, since you didn't make it last year. <laughs> right. We have a question over here. Okay. Um, yes, you made a reference to if someone sinned and it's taken care of, bury it. Where was that reference from? Saying what? You said something about. If someone sinned and it's taken care of, bury it. Where was the reference from? Uh, it's in Proverbs. Um, trouble with the book of Proverbs is it's, it's very hard to find things. Uh, <laughs> that's why you can't in a church, in preaching, you just can't preach through a chapter because you'll have ten topics in your sermon. They're all unrelated. I... I'll have to double check. I think it's in Proverbs 18, but I'll have to look for it. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty clear that uh, that the text is saying if this is something that you find the fault in somebody, and uh, rather than spreading the news of it everywhere, which will divide people, then just to bury it. But I'll I'll look up the reference here when we're through with all this. <laughs> Speaking of reference, you had a quote from Alexander Pope. Yep. And that was from what? His Essays on Man. Essays on Man. Okay, mm-hmm. that was a great quote. Okay, any other questions? Charlie. Yeah, Alan, could you give us the title of that book on worship that you did? This one. Recalling the Hope of Glory. This is Robbie's copy. I stole it from the table in there. So, Yeah, my books are back on the table, so you can look at them and order from Amazon or Christian book distributors or whoever your favorite source is for, uh, for these books. But um, 
they are not for sale, and they are not to be borrowed. <laughs> Actually, the copy back there on of the Leviticus one is is Alan's because somebody borrowed mine, and it has disappeared. Okay, another question. Just before you go on, we had a everybody here likes Walkie stories. Um, I had a little book that I got from my wife on teaching the Bible in English classes, which bought into all the higher criticism things. And I showed it to Bruce, and he wanted to borrow it. And he did, and I didn't see it for a long time. And one time we were having our department prayer meeting in his office. This is about a year and a half later. I looked down on the shelf, and there's the book. And I picked it up, and I said, uh, is this any good, Bruce? He says, yeah, it really is. I said, do you mind if I borrow it? He said, he said go ahead, but don't forget where you got it. I always do. <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. Okay, stand over here. First of all, I want to thank you as a pastor. We always had declarative praise moments in the churches that I pastored, and yeah. it took me months to teach them that that wasn't prayer request time, Yeah, that it was to yeah. return the thanksgiving. So mm-hmm. I saw so much fruit from that, Good. Um, and the name of the Lord lifted up. Can you speak just really quickly, shortly, to maybe um, your comments on the work-faith movement in terms of the Hebrew word avod, that, that your work is worship? Um, we have we've kind of focused on services and like Sunday gatherings, but the individual during the week worshiping in terms of their labor or their work. Uh, very briefly, I would have to say that whatever, according to the New Testament, whatever occupation you are in, you need to find a way to do it to bring glory to God. Um, and it doesn't matter what the what the occupation is. I don't I don't go into Genesis and try to prove that uh, working was part of the creation and therefore honorable and so on and so forth. Get that from Proverbs, not from Genesis. Uh, because God created Adam and Eve to be a, to have to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, they're supposed to serve the Lord keep his commandments, um, have dominion over the earth. The occupations came in after the fall. I mean, if you think back in paradise, you don't need policemen, you don't need armies, you don't need lawyers, you don't need uh, investment managers, you don't, none of that. That comes because of the problem of sin. But now when God redeems people, uh, they are coming out of every kind of occupation, every kind of life, and uh, The task as a Christian is to first do it honorably and righteously so that they're serving the Lord, but doing it openly and and doing it to the glory of God so that there's a higher motivation for you, say, as a medical doctor than somebody who is simply trying to make a lot of money. Um, it's, It's a challenge for everybody to make every everything that they do and everything that they are in some way honoring to God, beneficial to the saints, life-changing in the form of the Christian life, and, uh, 
and and it's it's the opportunity to service. And I think I think that has to be the governing principle for all of us. And it doesn't matter uh, whatever the occupation is that people have. They have to see that God called them, and this is where they are in their life and in their service. Now, how can I do this to the glory of God? Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. Which, as, as Charles Ryrie used to define, he had a wonderful way of giving simple definitions, you do it so that God can be seen. That's glorifying God. Hmm. We're not secret agent Christians who sneak into the jobs and come back next Sunday. Uh, no, it's supposed to live out our faith. It's actually harder to do that in Birmingham than it is anywhere else in the country. <laughs> because in Birmingham, everybody is a Christian. <laughs> everybody goes to a church. I mean, I'm serious. You go into the post office and people standing there lining up to get stamps. They're talking about their church. They're talking about their pastor. You listen to the news, local news at night. They're talking about how the Lord blessed us with rain. You know, everywhere you turn, they're all talking about their church, their faith. Um, that's not as much of a challenge then. You say, well, you know, this is what the Lord has done here. Oh, well, our church did that last year. You know, it's <laughs> uh, try it out in New England. Right? A little harder challenge, you know. But I, I think it still is a good practice that, uh, um, you know, in Birmingham they they don't they don't use the trite things like have a have a good day, have a happy day. It's always. Uh, May the Lord bless you. Or, or they, if you say, how are you doing? He says, oh, I'm blessed. It just, it just rolls off the tongues. And you never know how genuinely sincere it is. But um, when you drive through the city, a huge church almost on every corner, and uh, they all have their churches they go to. So, but you still give God the praise and give him the glory for whatever and seek ways to do it that people will realize that... Uh, that you're a Christian and that you're living your life and conducting your business righteously and honorably. The same question comes up if you're doing an exposition of Psalm 127 Um, because you start off by saying that um, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, if you're preaching that passage, what you have to explain to people is how does the Lord build the house? Because you've got builders who are building it. So if you say, for example, uh, if you're going to build something that is, uh, you can say the Lord is doing it, you would have to first decide this is something God is wanting you to have and it's going to be uh, not just for the wrong motive that you're doing this, not just because you want a bigger house than anybody else or whatever, but you want to do that. And then, and then you're going to do it honorably so that uh, you're not cutting corners, you're not sneaking past the inspectors, whatever else. It's going to be done righteously. And when you do build the house, uh, you trust the Lord for the provisions, and when it's built, you give him glory for what is built. And um, one thing that doesn't always happen in a lot of places, but does in some denominations, uh, you start, before you move in, having a house blessing. And the ministers come and the congregation, and they go through the church, the house, and they pray in every room and bless every room, and may it be used for God's glory here. And after all of that keeps going through the process, you can say this, well, the Lord really built this house, and I'm going to use it for the 
for that purpose, that it'll bring honor and glory to God. Um, so I, I think it's a big subject. And see, Psalm 127 is a wisdom psalm, so that ties you right into Proverbs. And um, you get some uh, some of those qualifications that you have to explain to people. Just say, well, unless the Lord builds the house, don't assume the congregation will figure out what that means. <laughs> you know, it's, it's too hard. You've got to spend a lot of time thinking about it and correlating other scriptures. And, and then you can talk about a simple thing like building a house. <clears throat> when, you have, when you build a new house and you move in it, um, how will you be able to say the Lord built this house? And uh, that, that should be something that, uh, that becomes very clear to everybody. My parents used to go to a church in Florida. Used to, I say, because they're in heaven, not because they quit going to church. But they used to go to this big church, and this church built a whole new sanctuary, very large Baptist church. And the pastor was disturbed by every time that he went into this thing in process, the language of the builders. I mean, it was all theological language, but it just wasn't in the right way. Um, And he was really disturbed by that. And so when... It came time, they turned the keys over to him, and they were going to move in the church. And the pastor with his, I don't know where he got the idea, maybe it was his, maybe somewhere else, he says, not so fast. He says, the first thing we have to do is sanctify this congregation and this sanctuary. So what they did is they put a Bible on the pulpit, and people signed up every hour of the 24 hours of the day. And when it was their time, they would come in, get up in the pulpit, and read the scripture publicly from the place the last person stopped and as far as they went. And then when they sat down, the next person come up, pick up the reading. And they wouldn't have a service in that church until they had read through the entire Bible publicly in this new congregation in his way of saying it to purge the place from all of the things that had said and been done here. That was one of the thing, one thing that really impressed upon the people that uh, if you if you if you're working, if you're a carpenter, if you're working on this congregation, if you're building the building, if you Christian, then there's a certain way you conduct yourself. And uh, if you've got a finished product like a house or a church, uh, you've got to make sure you're dedicating it so all the people know exactly this is this is a place that's very different from the world. And I think that's what you want to do with your occupation as well. That, yes, I'm a Christian. I happen also to be a doctor. Um, and um, you don't have to publish that every time you answer the phone or whatever, but it's the people you would expect to know that. And, uh, and, and it becomes a very important part for them to realize that whatever my gifts are, whatever God has given to me, somehow I have to use it for the glory of God doesn't matter what it is. And that's, that's the part the Christian has in the, in the work. Mm-hmm. One more. I was going to add something briefly before Bob starts. Go for it. I heard recently a missionary was here from Pakistan, so I'm not going to mention his name, showed a film. If you live in Pakistan and you're a Christian, you get the lowest, most menial, most dirty jobs. Mm-hmm. And so the small congregation, but they have, we're showing a picture of this man, and his job was to clean up 
the sewer system in mm-hmm. where where he lived, and he is up to his armpits in mud and praising God for his job. Mm-hmm. We've lost that in the U.S. That thankfulness. Be so many people. I've read surveys. So many people in our country are not happy with what they do. I think most pastors are just can't believe they get paid to do what they love to do. But um, <laughs> for many others, they they dread going to work every day. It's not what they love to do. And so, but whatever we have, we should have that attitude of just great joy. That that image, it just stuck with me. So, Bob. Uh, Alan, Proverbs 17.9, will you look at that? You had your detector out? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, okay. Is that the verse you were re- referring to? That's one of them. Yeah, he who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. That's one of them. There's about three that are like that. So it's it's not, of course, if the offense is you you become a pastor of a church and you find out that the this happened to one of our students became pastor of a church, found out that the Sunday school superintendent was abusing some of the girls in the Sunday school. Yeah, you don't bury that. I mean, this is something bigger. But he's talking there about sins, offenses, that uh, that if you don't need to publicize these things, then uh, y- if you do, you're going to divide the congregation, you're going to create enemies, um, drive people away, all kinds of things. So you have to consider carefully what you decide should be there. I've had problem with that in in a lot of the uh, seminary-related churches and chapel meetings where they talk about we, the Bible says we should confess our sins to one another. And then students start opening up and say, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we're not going there. Uh, that uh, is, nobody's going to remember anything else we're doing except what you did in college. <laughs> and uh, that's that's not quite it. But, you know, you find out about somebody who struggled and, like, you know, somebody who had an addiction to gambling and struggle with it all the time, and you just decide, well, to pray more intelligently, we need to share this. No, you don't need to share it. Um, Maybe the pastor knows about it. You don't have to be the publicity manager. So you're trying to say, we're trying to communicate a unity and love, and therefore things that are offenses, uh, you don't need to spread them. Um, if it's something that involves a crime and the law is involved, that's a different matter. And unfortunately that happens. We had a student graduated from the seminary in Ambridge and he went down to Atlanta to do some church planting. And uh, he had five families, very godly families, he thought, who were all meeting and planting this church. And he and his kids were staying in one of the people's houses, and he felt he was being a burden on them because there was tension in the house. And so he told the people, well, I'll take all my kids. He had eight of them. He said, we'll take all my kids. We'll go stay in a hotel till we get a place to live. And so they went, and they continued to set up this church. And all of a sudden, um, nobody knew where the guy's wife was. She, they thought, well, she, they must have split. She must have left town, whatever. And this guy was asking for prayer and for, you know, very pious. Um, 
they eventually found her dead in his trunk. Um, that's when Steve called me and said, we didn't cover this in pastoral ministries. <laughs> Not the same. But um, he got more advice from the Atlanta police than anybody. They said, you can go and visit him but you better take a witness. You better not listen to him carefully. You better not sympathize with him. You could be an accessory. This is how you're going to talk to him. This is what you're going to do. But, um, you know, there are just certain things that when you get into the law, that calls for some different kind of wisdom, different kind of approaches that you have to take. Um, but still, to keep spreading it abroad, even if other people know about it, is that really going to be the best thing for you to do? When we have prayer meetings, we don't need to go through all of the details of what we're praying for. Um, God knows them. And we don't need to give God advice. We do that when we pray, too. Uh, he, we pray for his will to be done. But uh, Proverbs, the rabbis have always taught, and I, have, I agree with it, that probably the book of Proverbs is one of the most important books in the Bible. Uh, their view is that something like the Ten Commandments are impossible to implement. If the Bible says, for example, you shall not covet, you say, but I want stuff. <laughs> How do I do that? Oh, you just can't say, well, don't do it. No, the solution comes from Proverbs, that you train your children from the very beginning to make the right choices of things in life. Some things are good, but they're not the best. You have to make that distinction, and, and you, you carefully work. And being rabbis, they're businessmen, so they like to do profit-loss ledger. So you train the child to say, okay, the gang is coming around. You can go to town with them tonight, but let's think about this. Let's go in the profit margin. What are you going to get? You're going to get an hour of fun. It's going to be exciting. The guys will like you, whatever. Now put over here the, the other side of the ledger. What's it going to cost you? You might get arrested. You might get beat up. You might get killed. You might ruin your reputation. Hopefully, the son will say, boy, that really costs too much, doesn't it? Uh, you know, the, so you train the family how to make the right choices by considering that, uh, well, one of the things Proverbs says, there's always a morning after. How will you feel the next day? And so when they train to make the right choices, then the idea of coveting makes sense because coveting, and I really hate it when churches say, I covet your prayers. That, that is, covet means something you're wanting that you shouldn't have. <laughs> you know, it's not, I want a nice new car. No, I want that car. Uh, it's taking something that doesn't belong to you. And uh, you train the family to say, we make choices every day. And it might look good on the surface, but it might be disastrous. And so we have to ask, um, what, what is the best way to proceed here? And, and should you do that or should you not do it? And, and unfortunately, even parents haven't been trained to do that. And so Proverbs, that's why it starts, the prologue of Proverbs is saying, this is written to the naive youth, the simpleton, you know, the banjo-eyed teenager or whatever you want to say, very graphic. But then it adds, and let the wise also learn more wisdom. Is you never you never completely get there, but they know that in Proverbs it's got all the details of when to talk, when not to talk, how much to share, how much to, uh, you know, it's always contrasting the fool and the wise men, and so that 
clarified for them most of the commandments in the law that uh, they're you're getting here behind the the nuts and bolts of how you do that rather than just uh, saying do this and don't do that okay. well we want to thank you very much for coming and speaking and teaching us it's just been a tremendous tremendous three days and we thank you so much Well, it's time for us to break for lunch. I want to remind you that at 1 o'clock there will be a 20-minute session here with Brad Maston talking about Camparete and also uh, Pastor Eliezer uh, Kiraz from Brazil. And he'll be here th- during that time. And so let me pray for the food. There is food that's been brought in uh, back in the fellowship hall. So uh, it's all ready for us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be challenged, encouraged, that we can be brought to a greater understanding of Scripture today. We thank you for the fellowship we have in Christ. We thank you for this food that you have provided for us, for you provide everything for us from the air that we breathe to the jobs that we have and the things that we enjoy to the food that sustains us. And we ask you to sanctify it now in Christ's name. Amen.